Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of VI Shots. My name is Michael Ivaliotis, and this podcast is devoted to the world of LabVIEW. With each episode, I'll bring you interviews, discussions, and share with you ideas for how you can take your LabVIEW development to the next level. In this first episode of VI Shots, I invited Ben Zimmer of Enable Training and Consulting to discuss how he started using LabVIEW and how he's built a growing business around providing training materials. He also talks about his interesting journey as a mentor to FIRST Robotics teams and how that has crossed paths with his business interests. Well, Ben, welcome to the VI Shots podcast. Thank you for having me on, Michael. I'd like to start by asking you uh, how long you've been working with LabVIEW and perhaps take us through your career journey. Well, I've been a LabVIEW programmer since 1994. And that's so long that I actually forget what version it is. I know everyone wears that like a badge of honor. It was definitely pre-undo, probably version 4. And I have basically just been a LabVIEW programmer for my entire professional career, um, which has been a very interesting path, which took me through a few different jobs, a few different industries, and ultimately had me settling in uh, the path which brought me to create and found Enable Training and Consulting in 2006. And the, the path which brought me to ultimately founding that, that company was kind of reflected in some of the troubles that were, were starting to be prevalent in the automation industry, particularly in automotive. Um, at the time, I was working for uh, a, a great company uh, called Meikle Automation in Kitchener, Ontario, um, actually with uh, one of your former colleagues. Um, he was someone who hired me away from my previous job. And, I, I, think it's, uh, I think it's okay to mention his name. <laughs> we, it is? Okay. He's not going to hunt either of us down. Well, actually, Meikle Automation is not no longer called Meikle Automation, but that was Dean Mills. And I remember uh, Dean was a customer of mine. Um, he was a beta, beta tester for a product that I was releasing at, obviously, the previous company I was working for. And uh, this was a product, well, long story so short, it was a, a, a very customized RS-232 to Ethernet adapter for a device that this company was manufacturing. And I was working there as a reliability engineer, so I was doing an awful lot of LabVIEW programming, testing, data anal analysis, that kind of stuff. And uh, Dean, being a beta tester for us, he found, of course, lots and lots of problems with, with our code, some really interesting problems. And this was back in 2000, 2001-ish. I remember uh, at one point uh, going to visit Mikkel, Dean at Meikle Automation and uh, seeing what they were working on, which was some very, very high-end PC-based test equipment. Um, back then, doing uh, serious integration with robotics and photonics and uh, instrumentation with very, very high, high rates of data collection and very, very high accuracies. It was not an easy problem to solve. It was, certainly, there were no, to speak of, no real-time tools from National Instruments, no hardware, software. And uh, I remember seeing what Dean was working on and saying to him and saying to my boss, see, see what you can do with LabVIEW? And Dean told me later that was the moment he decided to try and hire me. <laughs> and uh, so it's kind of been, my career's kind of been like that. It's been a lot of, hey, see what you can do with LabVIEW and uh, kind of taking it to the next step. So starting to work with Dean um, and, and the rest of the team at Meikle Automation was a tremendously challenging technically challenging and really rewarding part of my career. I think I was there for about four years. 
And we did a lot of things that were typically quite difficult to do in LabVIEW, particularly then, such as doing PC-based control of 16 simultaneous presses, collecting data at 10 kilohertz, operating independently, and again, this was with no real-time hardware or software. So finding the ways, finding some of these black art approaches to collecting data in one place and dealing with it somewhere else in your LabVIEW code, all on one computer, which you know, at that time was a Pentium 4, 1 gig, or 1.6 gig, something like that. Do you remember sort of the precise moment or, you know, exactly the first time you ever were exposed to LabVIEW? Absolutely. Um, I was in second year of university. I got a summer job, um, which was partial scholarship slash partial um, employment, where you work at an industrial um, employer and you're partially sponsored by the government to do so. I was given, or a better phrase is probably, on my desk was dropped, whatever, 25, three and a half inch floppy disks, which had this LabVIEW logo on the front of them. And I was told, uh, essentially, the guy before you made me buy this, figure it out. So the next step was to sequentially insert 25 or so three and a half inch floppies onto a Windows 3.1 machine, install this LabVIEW thing, as it was referred to many times over the course of that summer, and start writing software to control some very specialized instruments that this company was making. Um, these were fiber optic interferometers. And for a long story short, it was a lot of DAC and a lot of really weird signal analysis. So this, and, so this was, so was this back in 94, 1994? Yeah, this was 94. So now that you know, you can calculate backwards and see how old I am when I got my first degree. Um, but And I think the best lesson I ever got in signal analysis was that summer. And it wasn't a helpful lesson, but it was a very motivating one. It was my boss, who is uh, a very successful small business owner. He was a brilliant scientist, engineer, and he was a tinkerer. And he had been making these instrumentation, these fiber optic instrumentation devices for years and years and years. And he would hang a scope on a signal, look at it on the scope, and this is on a real scope, not part of this LabVIEW thing, point at some feature that popped up when he you know, did something which quite often involved, you know, standing on your left foot and jumping and while rotating, you know, while rubbing your head and very, very hard to generate events saying, hey, I saw that with my eye, you dig it out in software. I had to learn to do that and I didn't have any training. I was a second year student, you know, with a little bit of math. I had never done any programming and I was using this LabVIEW thing to do what he uh, says, I can do this with my eye, so you do it with the software. I learned to do that. I don't think I got a better lesson in calculus, a better lesson in things like differential equations, a better lesson in statistics than having to kind of figure them out for yourself while clicking around on these palettes and trying to find out what the heck function is going to allow me to see that thing, which I see with my eye. And it was very cool. I think it, it, that experience is probably the best, best definition I can give on why LabVIEW is such a powerful tool. Because here I was, a kid with no training, with no programming training, trying to solve a problem. I had some good problem-solving skills and some good analytical skills, and I was able, given just those bare-bones tools, to write software that I just simply couldn't have done if I was given you know, C or BASIC or Excel. That's what I think, um, that was the moment where I realized that programming should be problem-solving. And so later on in third and fourth year, when I took some more programming courses and it became all about dimensioning arrays and handles and pointers and all this stuff, I, I 
found myself quite often scratching my head saying, you know, I just want to solve a problem. So you were, uh, when we last left your journey through LabVIEW, uh, it was at Meikle Automation. Uh, how, how did that transition sort of from Meikle and then was there something in between or did you decide, well, let's, let's start a company here? Yeah, it's, it's a bit of an, an interesting story. Um, and it involves you, Michael, <laughs> because uh, I think as I described that job at, at Meikle um, and the work we were doing and the work they continued to do after I left, it was really cutting edge, really challenging. I mean, I, I talked about some of the high level things that it achieved, but, you know, behind all that was some really, really big code. I mean, we're, I'm, when I left, it was well over 2,500 VIs, and I'm sure it, it continues to grow. But some very, very... Um, flexible code, a uh, lot of embedded intellectual property. I mean, I'm not going to say any more. You could probably find out all, all that you wanted by Googling the, the Meikle Automation Software Suite. But my problem was never with the technical side. My problem was with the, um, the, the business side, was that really automation at that time, and a lot of our customers at that time were automotive. It was a very competitive, very, very difficult environment. You know, I worked a lot of hours and realized that that wasn't really the, the path I wanted to follow, ironically, because I'm now working as many hours as I was then. But um, one of the things that I, that I realized, and, and very much most of the business relationships with your clients were, were a bit adversarial because there was so, such low profit margins and the automotive industry was in the process of, of really tanking. So that's a, that's a long answer to a short fact that I, I just needed to move on to something where I felt the relationship with my clients was a little different. And I had an opportunity to go teach at a college in Toronto because someone I knew who was teaching a class there was moving to California. And that would be me. <laughs> and that would have been you. And so I saw that as a great opportunity to, um, to change paths pretty drastically. I took, I don't know, a 70% pay cut. To go, Probably, to, yeah. go, to go to go to teach. <laughs> and what was interesting was, um, and the reason I was able to do that actually, because it was more than just the LabVIEW class, because um, of, of the background I had and the other teaching experience I had and, and the master's degree that I got somewhere along the way, I was able to drop in as a, as a part-time faculty and teach more than just the LabVIEW course. So I was there teaching digital electronics, analog electronics, analog digital interfacing, um, digital logic, a lot of a lot of fun stuff like that, and um, they had a need for that. So I, I kind of came in as a, a part-time teacher um, and doing more than just the LabVIEW class. Yeah, when, well, when I when I was doing the LabVIEW class, uh, one one thing that was really rewarding was to was to see the students learning LabVIEW and making the connection between the physical property that they want to measure and sort of the data on the screen mm. and sort of bridging that gap. And I always found you know, you could see the light bulb go off in their heads. Say, "Oh, okay, I want to." Oh, for sure. I mean, that that was it's, it's very much the case um, in in colleges and universities that even amongst the lab work that they do, uh, very often there's a disconnect for the students between um, what they're told to do in their lab and what they're doing in in their theory and and what they're doing in their lab reports, and any sort of view of how this is applicable in the real world. When you are measuring a temperature and you are dropping that thermistor into frozen water that you just ran outside to get snow and put it in a styrofoam cup, um, that drives the point home quite well. And I and I was pleased because I got to say, hey, I can see that with my eye. You dig it out with software. Like I was able to turn that around. But to come back around to how that led to starting my company, 
uh, all the professors went on strike three weeks later. So here I was um, taking a big pay cut, um, taking a, a, a drastic change, and, and we actually moved a little closer to Toronto from, from where we were living, very close to Kitchener, and then we were on strike, <laughs> which I found quite entertaining. Um, so that gave me an opportunity to chase up some of the contacts that I had made over the many years and, and kind of follow up on doing some side programming. And uh, actually, ironically enough, one of my large clients at the time and the one which um, the, the work was enough to for me to justify actually creating a company rather than just doing it, you know, and, and, and getting a check for it uh, was the other position you vacated <laughs> when you went to, wow, Michael, I, I didn't realize how much I owed my career to you. Is this is there a theme going on here? <laughs> this is really funny, you know, and I hadn't thought about this in so long, and here I am thinking, oh, what I wonder what we're going to talk about in this podcast, and I didn't realize it was really just about us the whole time. Having picked up a couple clients um, and doing you know enough work to justify actually creating a company, um, I became a LabVIEW consultant and a LabVIEW contract programmer, and certainly I had been doing that for a long time. Anyways, and, and strangely enough, the work that I was doing, well, not strangely enough, uh, not at all surprisingly, you know, the really high-end work that we were doing at Meikle prepared me really, really well for, you know, facing kind of any problem and being able to walk in there um, in any situation and say, yeah, I've done something similar to that or I understand where the pitfalls will be there and be able to really carefully assess the risk in, in, in various projects. Um, and the other benefit was, you know, towards the last year and a half or so that I was at Meikle, I was able to do a lot of a lot of quoting and project management. So I had honed those skills uh, it, un, while I was under someone else's payroll, which is always a nice a nice way to get started as a consultant. Because uh, certainly quoting and anyone who's started off their business this uh, in this kind of industry will probably agree with this that one bad quote will kill you. Quoting was something that I was very pleased that I had the, the skills to be able to, to do, and, and that, that allowed me to be um, busy and uh, somewhat profitable. So uh, it seems from, from what I see on, on your website that you do a lot of basically LabVIEW training. You know, you're still focused in sort of the education side of things as far as LabVIEW is concerned. Oh, for sure. It was, it was no accident that we named the company uh, Enable Training and Consulting. It was my goal right from the start, frankly, to avoid the kind of business relationships I, I saw within the automotive industry, as an example, and really didn't want to get into that kind of uh, situation where you're on a, on a floor trying to get sign-off or you get a call at 2 o'clock in the morning on a Sunday because uh, a line has stopped making parts. Uh, I, I made a vow to myself and to my wife uh, that you know that wasn't going to be my life anymore. And so my goal was really fundamentally to to help people learn LabVIEW and provide programming services to always provide source code, which was uh, the goal for from the beginning. And I think is probably still 100% true on our projects to always provide source code to try as a as a very high level. Uh, mission statement to try and leave the customer self-sufficient so they never have to call me again. And ironically enough, um, that always meant that they called me again, but it was for the next project. And uh, so I spent a lot of time training people, um, doing LabVIEW training sessions for people who needed an in-house trainer, 
uh, in various situations where, for for whatever reason, they did not want to or could not physically get to, you know, one of the LabVIEW Basics one two intermediate course stream. They wanted something very tailored and did several of those. And at the same time, had very many uh, situations and, and and client relationships where I would be sitting beside the engineer who was my essentially my customer, teaching him or her LabVIEW and also writing their software at the same time. I found myself, you know, explaining state machines and producer-consumer loops and type defs and clusters, explaining that stuff over and over and over again, and kind of had the realization that the value add that I was providing wasn't necessarily in giving that training live. It was really in providing the, the mentorship and the personalization and wrapping what all of those lessons were around their project needs. And so it, it was a very natural progression to take the train the teaching skills and the educational background I had, take the LabVIEW experience I have, take the LabVIEW teaching experience I have and just wrap it all up and create some self-paced online training. Yes, and, and you've created another website, which I guess it's somehow connected to your main site called lvmastery.com. That's right. LVMastery.com was the site we launched at the beginning of 2008, which essentially has three courses, three full courses, um, approximately one week of learning time for each of them. So it's about three weeks, three weeks worth of training on there and starting at absolutely zero LabVIEW understanding and ending up on some what I think are the fundamental structures to make you able to create easily debuggable, easily scalable modular code, you know, things like state machines and multiple loop, parallel loop, loop architectures and producer con- consumer templates and, and all those things which since 2008 have started to be much more widely included in the various training products that are out there. But I, I took it upon myself to, to create a curriculum which followed the way I thought and the way I learned LabVIEW um, and the way I wanted the people who were working with me um, or who were learning from scratch to learn LabVIEW. Which is and you've, you've expanded that, actually. It's, you have quite a bit of content. Do you have, like, FRC Mastery? And, and yeah. Can you explain yeah. some of the other material? Sure, absolutely. There? So, yeah, LV Mastery turned into a, a, a whole bunch of course material. And so the, the path which led to some of this other stuff really all centers around FIRST Robotics. As I'm sure many of the people who are listening to this know that FIRST Robotics um, is, a, is a robotics competition aimed at high school kids, which recently, that um, was two seasons ago, um, became very much centered around national instruments, hardware, and software. What happened was... Um, uh, as they, part they of use, they use the C Rio, right? Exactly. There's a C Rio at the heart, and 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 LabVIEW is used to program it. Although there are there are other programming options for for teams if they wish, they can use Java, they can use C plus plus. Of course, LabVIEW is the best choice for a whole bunch of reasons. And you know, I, I can I can say that with a straight face because I you know I I, I do believe it. Um, but so what happened was with the the LV Mastery course that we the the website that we created part of that was you know a bunch of continuing and free um, videos so we had a a video blog section on that site and it's still there um, called the tip jar and on the tip jar we would uh, create a you know 15 to 20 minute little tutorial Um, the goal was to do it every couple weeks but um, you know as time went on the 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 pace of it changed and it kind of got refocused so here I had a, a website, I had experience um, creating video-based training material, and 
first robotic starts out. And there's a brand new control system, which is the Serio, and there's a brand new software platform, which is LabVIEW, brand new for all of these teams. And there are thousands of teams across North America. And I heard about this at NI Week, of course, and thought, wow, that's so cool, and dug up, uh, found a team relatively local where I could be, be a mentor. And I advise everybody, as a little aside here, as a sales pitch from which I, I serve to gain nothing, um, go to usfirst.org, click on FRC, and then click on Get Involved, and become a mentor for an FRC team, because it's awesome. Um, anyways, the FRC team that I, that I found and hooked up with, you know, they were terrified of this new control system, because they just barely got the last... Actually, they did quite year, well the previous year, but they've got this new, new complete system, so they can't reuse their code. And every team is in the same situation. So because I hooked up with them um, and I you know, got to play with the, uh, the control system that they got, I was able to bring it home for a weekend and basically make everything move, understand the framework, because it's, it's not just, you don't just get a blank VI you start with. There's a very specific framework which you are obligated by the rules to stay within, which is actually a very important and good thing. And so I was able to figure out how to make this thing go. I was able to get the team started. And I thought, hey, this is great. And I, I had um, a, a situation where I got to go with a couple of the local National Instrument sales reps to meet with a whole bunch of uh, teachers and mentors uh, for FIRST Robotics in, in Toronto. And the, the NI sales reps were at a real disadvantage because they thought they were just there to do a regular getting started three-hour lab you thing. And you had this room full of teachers who all got their new robot kits saying, hey, how do I make this thing work? And so, because I was there and I had just played with it, I, I you know, I offered to do a, an ad hoc little session and, and show them how to get one of them working because one of them had one of the teams had the robot there, and that was a very successful, completely off the cuff, two-hour session. And, and I was asked to come back and do that for a whole bunch more students and teachers, and we videotaped it, and that became and so because I had the mechanism up on lvmastery.com to put that up on the tip jar, uh, we did so. And it just kind of went from there that we continued to make uh, videos, uh, video tutorials for, for FIRST Robotics, for FRC, and throw them up on the tip jar. And, and, um, and those, uh, those FRC videos actually are, are totally free, right? That's correct, 100% free. And they, they always were and they always will be because, you know, teams, te it's hard enough to fundraise to become part of, uh, to get a team going for FRC. You don't need to have to pay to watch those, those, those video tutorials. Um, actually, just just before I, I got on the air here with you, I actually went and checked out some of the tip jar videos, and I was looking at the the last one, number eighteen, where it says everything so far, mm -hmm. and I believe you had code from Team Eight Forty Three. Is that is that the team that you're that you were mentoring? Yep. White okay. Oaks in Oakville, Ontario. Go Wildcats! Yeah, I have so, to throw that in. I think I'm legally obligated to say that. <laughs> so. Is, was this code that uh, the actual students wrote, or is this something you like? How, how was how much involvement did you have with sort of the writing of this code? Uh, a fair bit, um, certainly. Um, but there were there was one student in particular, and, and that's the code from actually from two years ago. Um, there's one student in particular who um, was the most brilliant natural programmer I've yet to meet, and he actually did a tremendous amount of it. Um, we worked on it together, um, and you know we had a lot of iterative design uh, 
changes and you know a lot of things didn't work and we had to figure things out because there really weren't any other resources out there so you know i'm not going to i'm not going to pretend that i didn't have quite a hand in in the way that structure went um, but what was impressive to me in that process of working with some of these students who were you know 14 through 17 was it didn't take that much for them to really get it and we're talking about things like using functional globals to um, and multiple um, differently prioritized loops, one to do a PID, one to do the actual low-level control for the motor speed using a PWM output, and then a second loop running at a slower rate to change your set point, all of which are communicating via functional global variables to the main VI. I mean, the, what, the level of complexity that you can get to within the FRC framework, um, I think you can, you can blow away... Uh, a lot of probably seasoned lab professionals who may not have seen or had to do what a lot of these kids are doing day in day out on these teams. Yeah, well, well, the C the C Rio environment is actually very interesting, and you know perhaps we should dedicate like a whole show just to that. Um, there's there's a lot of components on there that that are worth talking about. One one thing that I noticed in the code so was the use of global variables. Now. Uh-huh. I know that when you're programming on the CREO environment, there are some limitations of things you can do. The choice of global var- the usage of global variables, is this specific to this use case, or is this how did that come about? Because we all know as LabVIEW programmers that you know globals are evil, right? Yeah, oh for sure. And I struggled a lot, and uh, I think uh, I think I've had some heated conversations with. Uh, with Greg McCaskill and some other people about the the way the framework is structured. And there are advantages and disadvantages that have a particular relevance when you need it to be used by 16-year-olds, right? So there's there's a lot of things that are in that framework that, you know, you and I'm not going to go into the details, but that make it kind of difficult to do what we as seasoned LabVIEW programmers would like to do. And, you know, the, the, the reason for that is it's got to be able to just work and it's got to be easily modifiable. And in fact, the, the, the code tour that I provided and, and the modifications that I or the approaches that I suggested were in some ways quite complicated. I will defend the the global variable usage in that in that application. And if you watch some of the other tip jars, there's some very very careful discussions about global variables and race conditions are discussed very very carefully. And the way global variables are used, there are only two places where the global variable can be written to and they can be read in many places and that is very strictly controlled and very clearly pointed out to the students. And I would love to talk through that code with with people because it's it's been it was it was uh, with all due respect to the rest of team 843 the robot that year did not live up to the software we had this amazing we had four different pid loops controlling motor speed we could do all kinds of great stuff with the software but you know the robot she just didn't work that good (laughs) so uh, in the end almost all of these cool software features got disabled and and that is the challenge of the first competition is what team can sort of pull together all the different uh, elements you know into a cohesive working robot because there's there's not just software there's the mechanical there's organizing and all that stuff there's so there's diff- absolutely and there's a time crunch you only have six weeks to do this you don't know what the game is going to be until January and then you've got basically six or seven weeks to get it into a shipping crate. Or you've blown your budget. You've, you you don't get to go into the competition. 
So are you are you still involved in, in mentoring at this point? Very much so. And so this is what's le- led us um, in, back into the, the main discussion. You completely diverted me with global variables and functional globals and, and fun stuff like that. But so I made all these videos. Um, they were watched a lot. Um, I think I did a calculation and we gave away in that first year 25,000 person hours of LabVIEW training just through those tip jar videos because they were long. Um, they were long, detailed videos and they were watched thousands and thousands of times. So what happened was I got an interesting call from the um, product manager uh, at National Instruments, um, uh, Stephanie, who was, was in that position at the time, because um, she said she kept going to competitions and and so on and getting thanked for the awesome tip jar videos. And she said, what the heck are these tip jar videos? So she eventually realized and then contacted me because she – and to thank me saying basically, you know, we uh, – we being national instruments are, you know, donating this material and giving it, uh, either donating it or giving it at such a low cost. I mean, the teams can buy a complete Serial with LabVIEW software for $750 to buy a second device, and it's part of their $7,000 kit or $5,000 kit, which includes all kinds of stuff. So, we we know what that stuff is worth for industrial customers. I mean, it's it's at a tremendous discount that it's being provided to the teams through First, and. Um, that Stephanie made it clear, you know, that, that unfortunately there just wasn't a huge budget left for creating tutorials and training and, and, and other support resources. Um, although NI has great um, phone tech support during the season, you know, they just didn't have the bandwidth to do what we were already doing. So that led to a great relationship um, and working together um, and you know, making sure that what we were doing jived with what NI was planning. And that really got Turned um, turned a corner in the direction our enable training consulting was going, and allowed us to kind of reach a in a different way into this robotics ecosystem. And it led to meeting Lego Education, uh, training material for the Mindstorms based uh, first competition, the uh, the FTC competition. So we have another website called FTC Mastery where there's a bunch of material given away for free, and you know for a modest fee you can also upgrade and, and watch. The tutorial videos. So, in addition to the to the basic content, and and so that has been very much where our business has been. Well, one of the major areas that our business has been growing in over the last two years has been becoming almost an OEM provider of training material for for other companies. Um, so, the skill set that we we have and that we demonstrated and and really sharpened creating the LV mastery material and the tip jars has led us into the realm of being not just LabVIEW integrators, but also people who can create training material for you. That's been a very rewarding side of the business because it really meets that initial goal I had of never being called at two in the morning and feeling like I'm working on really rewarding projects. Because when you're working on stuff that's going into elementary schools or we've got to play with the Lego WeDo product, which is uh, a very, very cool thing. If you, and that could be another discussion all in itself. You know, work with uh, material for kids in grades two and three, you know, all the way up to university level stuff. But we have been creating a lot. We've been very busy and really generating a tremendous amount of growth around being technical experts who are also educational experts. So, like for example, on staff now, I've got I've got two teachers full time just working on on curriculum resources. I've I've now got a full time graphic designer in addition to you know a whole bunch of of LabVIEW people. I mean in Two years ago, when when it was all when we were creating the the tip jar videos, I, I keep using the term the word we, but it was just me. 
uh, it was really just me until about two years ago. All of this has kind of been hand in hand that as our capability grew, um, we've been getting a lot more work on the consulting side, on the contract programming side. And you know now we're at 15 people and we're moving out of our 823 square foot office uh, in a week and a half into a 3,000 square foot office, which means that we each get more than uh, 60 square feet, which is really, <laughs> really nice. I'd like to just close this with, with maybe one last question. So with, with all your knowledge on LabVIEW uh, and training, what would you say would be the, the best way or maybe a, maybe a tip for those of, that are, want to learn LabVIEW, don't know what LabVIEW is, and they just want to get started? I, I've often felt, and I'm going to try the, and say this in such a way that it's it's not a cheesy sales pitch, because there are all kinds of resources out there. There are a lot of YouTube videos now, um, and but my feeling has always been that the magic bullet to training is self-paced video plus mentorship, and that mentorship can take a lot of forms. It can be uh, forums like the the Lava forum, like ni.com's forums. Um, I'm, I'm a big believer that you can't learn by watching, you can only learn by doing, and that um, every time I teach a course or create material, I mean, it drives that home. That you really need to be able to exercise the skills as you're learning them. So I, I'm, I'm not a huge fan of um, a setting where you're just following a bunch of steps and not understanding the big picture context. My preference is that you you get to watch either an expert present material, whether it's in a video or in a classroom setting, and then you are then able to to flex those muscles and solve problems right away. Um, and but it has to be tied back together with the ability to ask someone questions right away. And that's why I think, you know, like the work that you've done, Michael, over the past several years, bringing lava to the critical mass that it reached now and, and you know, the, the changes that NI has made to their the, the, the NI.com forums and, and info LabVIEW, if you're an, an old-timer LabVIEW guy like me, that being able to ask those questions and get almost real-time answers while you're flexing the muscles that you're growing, I think that's the magic bullet for training. My advice to anyone who's learning LabVIEW for the first time is to do uh, three things. One, find some sort of course. Find some sort of step-by-step -step curriculum that will make sure that you don't jump over any of the very uh, you know, fundamental things. Like, I don't know how many times I've met people who never learned that there's a bundle by name in there beside the bundle. Something that fundamentally will, will show you the materials, and there's lots of great textbooks out there, and, and Jim Kring's is, is also a great place to start. Start with something like that, then supplement it by going through the example finder, trying to figure these darn things out, especially some of the really esoteric ones, like search for XY, uh, XY chart. No, XY graph. If you look up XY, the XY graph example, I love that one as a, t a teaching tool. If you can figure that out, you're, you're, you're a good lab programmer. And thirdly, find someone or um, uh, a place where you can ask your questions and get them answered. I remember when I was learning, I didn't have that. <laughs> and neither and did I. I, I the the one thing that I stumbled on, which was kind of silly now, thinking back, was uh, in the early releases of LabVIEW. Well, I started way back when in 3.0. They only had, I think, they only had like a true, a Boolean constant. They didn't have the false in the palettes. <laughs> so so I would put down the true, and I and said, then well, put a not down. Right, because I didn't know <laughs> I didn't know how to put a false, or I would see a false in an example, and I would copy it from an an I example, and I would put it down or something like that. 
So then I went to this uh, seminar, and the only question I wanted to ask was, how do I get a false Boolean? <laughs> and once I got that, it's like, oh, I can actually toggle that? So something as simple as that could sort of hold you back, and it's like, oh, how do I get over this hurdle? That's, that's such a, you know, and I think that the fact that there are so many resources out there now, and that there have been for, you know, five or seven years, really, really good resources, makes it a yeah. different kind of world. So, Ben, I'd like to thank you for joining me today on, on this episode. So, um, hopefully, we'll have you back. Sure. My pleasure. And, uh, I, I hope so. More. So, thanks a lot. My pleasure. Have a good one. If you want to find out more on Ben, you can go to his company website at enabletc.com. That's E-N-A-B-L-E-T-C.com. If you want to leave feedback on this and future episodes of the VI Shots podcast, I encourage you to visit vishots.com. We also have a telephone number you can call to leave voicemail messages and questions that you want answered on the air. The number to call is 1-888-788-5778. Our next episode will be in two weeks. Thank you for listening and bye for now.